Welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast, a show about planning for, responding to, and recovering from emergencies. I'm Stuart Walker, and on today's show, I'm talking with Julie Cowan, founder of Search and Rescue Dogs Australia. Before we start, I'd like to thank leading firefighter Jason Halls from the Country Fire Authority, who connected me with Julie. Jason has been instrumental in developing close relationships between Search and Rescue Dogs Australia and his organisation. I hope you enjoy the show. Julie Cowan, Search and Rescue Dogs Australia, welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast. Good morning, Stuart. Thank you for having me. Julie, where did your passion for Search and Rescue Dogs come from? I've always trained dogs and horses all my life, and I've gone through the obedience, uh, all the, the formatted things that you teach dogs, and I realised that there was a need in the community uh, and the capability of a trained search dog. Now, that was back in 1994, and another... Um, training associate and I he was from Germany he'd had a bit of experience in the avalanche work and from there we decided to research search and rescue and we started off with um, Landsar which is bush searching area searching and then we went into the cadaver side of it which is dogs locating human remains buried and from then on my that uh, my associate, he passed away in 2001. So I've been at the helm of it for since 1994. And each year, you know, we just seem to be gaining a little mo- bit of momentum and hopefully they will recognise the capability of a trained search dog in emergency services. You are head of the Search and Rescue Dogs Australia. So what is Search and Rescue Dogs Australia? Well, we're a volunteer organisation, self-funded, and we train dogs for uh, emergency response. If there's an earthquake or a landslide, mudslide, uh, our dogs are capable of going in and locating um, a lot quicker than a human in a search situation. Um, They, we can the dogs can locate the breath and bacteria off a human that's buried sometimes up to to 8 to 10 metres, depending on the size of the earthquake. Uh, Or in a land search situation, they can range up to three to four to 500 metres away from the handler with that airborne scent, and they're just trained to go in and find it. And you mentioned to me last week that your dogs can find something as small as a human tooth. That's right. That's correct. Yes. We were deployed to Black Saturday uh, with our two retired dogs now, and uh, we weren't really uh, used to that sort of um, deployment because, you know, burnt human remains, well, you know, it's another area of, of training and discipline. However, the bacteria on a person after um a fire or, or humidity or something, it multiplies, the bacteria multiplies. And we were sure that there was a lot of enough bacteria over the three humid days we were up there in the beginning to be able to successfully uh, search and locate and alert to uh, human remains, assisting police forensics at all times. And we were at a, an area that um, one of our dogs uh, located and was so sure that it was just a mass of ash. 
and kept going into the corner, going into a particular corner of this flattened um, house. It was just like an explosion. And when forensics sort of boxed off the area that he kept locating, well, we found out later on that it was a human tooth that he'd been able to locate. So we don't know how good a dog's nose is. If we could see as well as a dog could smell, we could see another million colours. We have found um, through the years um, that the capability um, the and the intelligence of the dog when he's able to locate airborne scent in a building or in a um, an area search, how efficient he is. And then it's just up to us to actually work around that um, intelligence and efficiency and create a capable search dog. The dog finds the bacteria or the smell of the of the remains. Is there a period of time when the capability of the dog to find remains is at its highest? Uh, look, we we're, first and foremost, we're, we train our dogs to find that live person. To get to that, um, the situation where that person is missing or, um, you know, it's a collapsed building, yes, time is, is if, you know, is critical. But to be realistic, when you do go to a deployment, um, you know, you really have to get yourselves organised and, um sometimes you may not get to work on that site or or find that person for at least 10 to 12 hours upon arrival depending on it all but look that that doesn't um that doesn't affect the dogs at all but we would prefer to get there earlier rather than later not sort of three to four days later sometimes when we've been deployed and uh you know you just um it, it is a lot more difficult how many active search and rescue dogs and handlers do you have in your team? We have um, six um, handlers and we have eight dogs teams and we have, you know, members who have two dogs. And personally I have three um, and Will, my golden retriever, he's nine now. He's been operational since he was two but he's getting on towards retirement and my other operational dog tank has just turned six so he's probably got another four to five years left in him for operational and I've got a human remains detecting dog and a young dog he's just on two so we have to really think about you know bringing along these puppies all the time and we have members who have been through the team for quite some time um, and have learnt and they're sort of keen that when their dog retires well, if they've got to have another one coming along. It's a real bug. It's a lifestyle mm. and we couldn't do without it. And if we can, in our whole lives of training these dogs, if we can just save someone's life just once, it would be all worth it. What is the most challenging search and rescue mission you've had to perform to date? Uh, I guess Black Saturday uh, was very daunting um, given the situation uh, really not not comfortable that we had the right dogs because when I got a call from the MFB, they asked me for a cadaver dog and have you got a cadaver dog? And I said, no, well, a cadaver dog is a dog that locates human remains buried. This situation was human remains but in a different form. Mm-hmm. So uh, upon the request, we said we would deploy. We deployed our two 
um, USAR slash Landsar operational dogs, and I asked them to give me an ex- um, you know a positive find just to see how the dogs would go on it because. A, I don't want to waste their time, and B, I don't want to waste ours if our dogs are not going to perform. So on upon arrival at King Lake, we were taken to a positive area, and we just thought we'd see what the dogs would, would do. So, um, and, of course, the police forensics said to us, you know, it's not what you're going to think it looks like. So we know what it looks like and we will be able to see the dog's reaction. Well, it was an absolute perfect reaction, very puzzling, looked at the handler, said, this is here, there's bacteria here, mm. here. So we rewarded for that um, that alert and then my dog came in, he did the same thing. And we were confident then that they've been rewarded for that out of the ordinary smell, but it's still a form of bacteria. And because it, w- it had been so hot and humid and it was qu- it was cooler up there on the Monday than it had been, of course, over the weekend. So we were able to work on that, you know, and reward them for that um, because the bacteria multiplies in humidity. And we said to them, look, we've got a three-day window for this work. So uh, we did. We worked there for up until the Thursday. We went across to Marysville on the Thursday and we were able to be successful over there as well. And Friday it was off home and uh, uh, the dogs were just keen to go every day. And I'm not sure about us, but it was such a daunting area and something that I'll never forget and something that I hope we never, ever see again. But we're prepared now. After that, we're fully prepared for something like that. What were some of the challenges in terms of safety for the handlers and the dogs in that sort of situation? Very, very challenging. Uh, we we are uh, trained in um, emergency services. You know, we've got the right PPE. But, you know, we were relying on the fireys there, MFB, CFA, uh, you know, they were fantastic in guiding us to areas that were maybe okay for the dog but not okay for the handler. So this is where you need a dog that's going to really work independently of you. We can just send them into an area, locate with a GPS of what um, of where it is or what they're alerting to. Um, it was the same up at... at um, Cumberland Resort in Marysville. Uh, we weren't allowed on the site at all because there was a huge brick wall that was unsafe, and we reluctantly sent the dogs in. Uh, we were we it was confirmed from an engineer that it was, you know, solid enough that it wasn't going to fall on the dogs, but the humans weren't allowed on the site, and they worked beautifully independently and both located uh, at the same area, one at a time, you know, not together. So it, it was a challenge. The whole uh, it was our first real major deployment um, in a disaster situation. You know, you can set up a, a mock search as best as you can, but there's, there's no way near the real thing. So, um, and I've been travelled uh, the world, really spoken to people who have been deployed to Turkey in 1999 to 9/11 to Haiti, uh, Katrina, and uh, a lot of uh, Oklahoma even. And just working with people like that that have had that experience 
um, you gain it all and and you sort of think I'll never get there with my training but we're ready we we have um, good dogs and we're confident that they will go and find you mentioned that the dogs alert when they find remains what does that alert look like uh, look, with in in this country, really, there's no set standard for a human remains detecting dog. But first and foremost, if the dog locates any any human remains buried, we don't want the dog contaminating the area. So, so my dog is trained uh, what we call a passive alert. So he will just drop on the ground and he will put his nose as close to the sources as he can, and just remain there. And that's a perfect indication. In the United States now, they're asking for a vocal alert because sometimes you're not around to see what the dog's doing, which is fair enough. Um, but uh, you do work a, a lot closer with a human remains detecting dog than a um, live uh, human detecting dog. The dog can go over rubble, uh, in and out uh, quite efficiently and... When you hear that bark, that dog is trying to get as close to that human um, breath as he can. So you as a handler have to come up, recognise that um, alert and try and help uh, and call the fireys, the rescue people through. I remember quite a few years ago now we were up at Fiskville with the CFA doing our Cat 1 course and there was 18 of us doing our course and we all did the line and hail. And, of course, there's um, that breathing apparatus, the pipes underneath the, the rubble pile there. And we had the two dogs up there. So after it took us probably, we were up there for about an hour, the 18 of us doing all that line and hail. And then Andy Waterson, bless him. Um, hi, Andy, if you're listening. <laughs> um, he said, Julie, can you get the dogs up and see how long it can take them to locate? Now, those little pipes were just tiny little pipes buried deep down in the rubble, um, a minute and a half it took those That's two incredible. dogs. incredible. Yeah, from one end, one came in from one end, one came in from the other, scooted over the rubble, both alerted a minute and a half and everyone turned around and said, well, why are we doing this? So <laughs> this, is, this is what they are. They're so efficient and worldwide. You must be so proud of your dogs. We are. Can't you tell? I can. (laughs) Your passion is absolutely evident. Oh, it's over the top. Yeah. Very proud. SAR dogs are either air scenting or or trailing tracking dogs. So what does this mean? With the trailing and tracking dog, he's finding the crushed vegetation where someone has walked across an area. Um, So basically... With a a trailing dog, um, they have, um, we call them urban search and rescue dogs, where they can trail a person across a a busy car park or something like that. Um, Our dogs are air-scenting dogs, and they are, you know, they're off-lead. The other two dogs, the tracking and trailing dogs, are all on-lead. Our dogs are off-lead, and they can range from two to 300 metres away from us. And if we use the wind properly, use the sun properly, um, and we can, we can, you know, we've given an area, we closely should be able to work out where to put the dog to get the best part of what we call the scent cone, which is the, the cone, that, the scent that comes off the person and comes off in like a tunnel situation, smaller, smaller, and then it goes out. And we need to run that dog along 
not into the wind, but just along beside the wind. So each time he quarters, he comes back through the scent cone. And this is how much more efficient the dog is because I know that the tracking dogs, if you've got a lot of searches, bush searches and walking everywhere, it's really hard to pick up that trail. And the best dogs for that sort of work are the bloodhounds. Mm -hmm. But of course, you can't let the bloodhound off the lead because he hasn't got much between the ears. He's got a brilliant nose. Yes. But, um, yeah, so really you need a dog that's uh, got this independent um, ability and initiative and really the reward that we've been he's been trained for is set in stone and he will work until he finds it. We had um, a search, an area search. Uh, it's just gone 10 years actually. Up at Mount Dom Dom, it was in the Age newspaper um, a, a last week, I think it was, and oh, you know, we were asked the police search and rescue asked us to go to to the top of Mount Dom Dom. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous, and uh, you know, the dogs just kept working, kept working, and uh, we got to the top. We'd been given the GPS reference of where we had to search. The police search and rescue gave us a GPS and they had the satellite tracking us. It was amazing. They could see the dogs working from the satellite. And, yes, we covered that area. Uh, We came back down after about four hours and we had a break and then those dogs were ready to go after lunch. Not too sure about us, (laughs) but those dogs were ready to go. So really they say that you work them 20 to 25 minutes on, 20 to 25 minutes off. In a situation like that, you can't. So with the training, you can't do long, long searches. You know, my um, ideal is short, simple, successful. The dog, you know, if he's got the right drives, he will just continue to do it and do it and do it. So, but looking and doing short and simple searches, is that part of the, the reinforcement of the dog about what they're doing and being able to then reward them for a success? Is that the, is yeah, that the basically, theory? Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's basically, yep, yep, everything. They get paid. We get paid for working. Yes. You know, you get paid for working. Yes. They get paid for working. And if you don't, if that paycheck is not efficient or sufficient, I mm-hmm. should say, um, they're going to say, what What am I working? So the main thing that we have to do is the reward. And that reward is all um, just a, a a toy reward, a tug toy. Mm. Um, and people say, I can't understand why the dog is only just wants to play tug with you when he's found that person. That's because you have to have the dog with the right hunt drive, mm-hmm. play drive, prey drive, and be intelligent and be biddable. So that's five things that that go into making a good search dog. Yeah. Um, no aggression uh, to either dog or handler and want to work for you and want to be a partner and, and live in a pack. So... Um, it's it's the paycheck at the end, which is really important, and it's instilled from a puppy. Given the five different drives that uh, a dog needs to be a successful SAR dog, what type of breeds then perform best in those characteristics? Uh, look, I did forget to to uh, uh, in, you know add on that good strong nerve, mm. and that comes through the genetics of breeding a dog. Uh, look, universally, um, it's the Labrador retriever that you know is is the most popular um, around because mainly 
the athleticism of a good, strong working line of a, of a uh, Labrador, we tend to go for the gun dogs first and foremost because gun dog breeds, and they're not, not a lot of gun dogs. You've got Labradors, Golden Retrievers, uh, and they use their nose first. Whereas you come along to the herding dogs, the German Shepherds, the Aussie Shepherds, the Border Collies, really efficient in what they do in herding, but they use their eyes. Mm. So we have to train them to use their nose before their eyes because, um, and that's why we love to get them as puppies. But the Labrador, Golden Retriever, German Shepherd, Border Collie, Kelpie, uh, and, and look, some crossbreeds are, are good for it. Um, and the statistics universally um uh, there's one in 400 dogs are really, you know, are capable of doing this work. So the ratio is, it's this is why it's so hard and there's so few dogs. Yeah. There's only probably about 30 dogs in this country that are actually training uh, for this discipline uh, through the states of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Western Australia. So, um, and it is a lifestyle with this work and we're all volunteers no one gets paid for it so when the when of course when you're a volunteer clearly you love your dogs so what do the dogs do when they're not out training for search and rescue they're just couch potatoes <laughs> at home yeah they they're good we we uh we you know they exercise twice a day uh to keep up their fitness and stamina but you know they just lounge around with us at home um, we find that um, we clearly uh, indicate to our new people that come in that if you're away on deployment, you're going to have to sleep with your dog. Mm. There's probably not going to be any area that you can put your dog safely away in your truck or your trailer or whatever. So you're going to have to sleep with your dog. And, you know, you might might be in the Western Shelter or the Boo or whatever. It's been set up. But those dogs... Um, have to be used to a crate and they can either be sleeping beside you or in a crate beside you. These dogs have to be used to all that. So that's when you get a puppy, you crate train straight away and all my puppies that are, are basically born in a crate mm. and they're in the house and they're in and out of the crate. They don't see the crate as a punishment, which a lot of people apparently do. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you go in the crate now because you're being naughty. Yes. So our dogs, you know, our SAR dogs need to know that that's their comfort zone, mm. the back of the truck or the dog trailer or a crate. Um, and it's their downtime. So, yep, no, they're just um, just good dogs at home, very vocal, uh, and just a part of our pack. Yeah. So, run of the house. You're not you're not keeping them away in a kennel overnight. They are fully integrated in your home life. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are because these are some of the requirements that you need mm. to have because the dog must know that you're not going to leave him somewhere or lock him in a room or, or whatever um, comfortable and be sort of really confident that, you you know, it's like a, um, a policeman in his revolver. Mm. You know, it goes everywhere with you. It's your partner mm -hmm. and it's your defence mechanism. So um, our dog is a tool. It's just another tool in the fire, an emergency service rescue um, toolbox. 
And does the dog sort of immediately switch from being I'm at home on the couch to I'm now in search and rescue mode? <laughs> is it is it that simple or is there a, is there a trigger that you need to, to get them in the mood as, a, as such? We only have to bring the truck out. Oh, really? And yeah. the dogs are going nuts. And um, it was funny. We had a, a weekend, a recruitment weekend, and uh, a retired um, police dog squad um, gentleman was there and, and he, he laughed, you know. He said, um, I said, you know, they've had, people have only got to zip up their bags and the dogs know they're going. Yeah. And um, he said that he, he sneaks through the room to get, put his uniform on when he get used to get a call out and the dog would be running around the back knowing that he was getting in the truck and finding out which window he was so he could see what he was doing. Mm. Absolutely, you know, uh, they know exactly what's going on. They're on the job straight away because they love it and if they don't love it, they won't do it. Having a well-trained dog, no doubt, is just one part of the puzzle here. What are the characteristics of a good handler? A good handler um, for this work needs to be a um, have knowledge about dog training, not specifically in formal obedience, um, but yeah. You know, but we can't we can't have them coming in from an obedience or tracking fraternity. The dogs that have gone through that because a lot of the time the dogs then are, are relying on the handler to give them um, direction whereas our dogs have to be independent and work independently and efficiently. So we, we like to, you know, to be a good, a good handler, you know, uh, have dog sense. And I think that that rapport that you have with a dog, it's built in. You, you can't teach it. Mm. And the, the handler needs to be a team player, able to work with other dogs, able to work with other handlers and, um, just have the same sort of biddable relationship that we look for and temperament that we look for in a dog. And therefore, what sort of training does the, does the handler need? Our, our handlers have to be fit and healthy. We prefer young ones, but uh, it's not, it's not the case a lot of times. You know, you've got to have a person that's, um, you know, has no commitments because um, – it's a volunteer organisation and it's not just something you do on Saturday with your dog. It's a commitment that needs to be backed up year-round and be able to go on training exercises. And we we have a lot of training exercises during the year. But I know in New Zealand now that they're um, making the dog – the sorry, the dog handlers – have to go through a, a punishment course as well. They have to be able to um, do confined space with a BA mm-hmm. on their back, uh, climb a ladder right up to the top of a building and have to be, um, you know, confident that they can repel out of the, a, a tall building. The dogs have to be able to do that, uh, be repelled up, you know, in a um, platform and onto a top of a building because we may not have um, ground access. We maybe only have access from the roof. So the, the handler needs to be able to be um, strong enough and um, fit enough to compound all those disciplines. And there is a mission readiness test that, that you can do where there's, um, you know, you have to walk uh, five to ten kilometres with five kilos on your back 
Uh, this is um, an, an international uh, requirement. But, yeah, no, the um, it's not for the faint-hearted at all because climbing the rubble is a very um, – it's an art form mm-hmm. and to do the regulations, um, you know, that the fire service have instilled onto us is is vital for our safety and their safety. I'm interested to know what the process is of taking a new dog to a fully operational search and rescue dog. How does a puppy go from a few weeks old to becoming a fully fledged search and rescue dog? We we start them um, off as puppies. Now, as puppies, it's just and the whole thing is just a big game of hide and seek. Mm-hmm. So, the puppy starts off with, um, and you really look at the genetics. You know, you can't. Um, you know, if you if you say, look, I want to get a puppy, okay, we've got if we found a litter. Say, for example, it's a Labrador mm-hmm. litter, and both parents are working lines. Well, the genetics say that this dog will have all the drives that you need, but there are failures as well. So, the puppy needs to be confident, uh, needs to be able to play with a toy, tug with a toy, and. You can see that how they play in the puppy in the puppy pen with other puppies. You can watch how they play. Um, if they're not happy to fight their way through a, a a towel that's running along the ground or something like that, so you pick your puppy from from that sort of thing. But but you know, but then people can come to us with a puppy that we yeah. haven't picked and be successful. So the process takes of ho- the actual hide and seek takes from probably eight weeks to eight or nine months of just this search work. Now, all it is is just that the, the, uh, we have a victim, what we call a victim, or a survivor, as I've been told it is, um, a helper that teases the puppy with the toy and then runs away and lays on the ground. Puppy runs up to it, mm. jumps all over it, give me my toy, give me my toy. And finally, the, he gets the toy. So... Um, He'll know that process. He'll know that um, then eventually we need to get a bark out of them. But there is a process that we teach um, the dog. Communication comes in. Their best form of communication is the bark. So we need to get them so frustrated for that toy. Um, and it's a, it's a squeaky ball in a sock. Mm-hmm. It squeals like a prey. You yeah. know, when they're, it, as I said, that's what gets the dog going. You know, it, it's the adrenaline. Um, and the squeaky toy is if they're killing it. You yes. know, they are, they are hunting animals, you know, first and foremost. And then that process, you know, then you start putting the victim out of sight. The dog knows that picture and it, you know, if you train your dog in what we call videos, you know, and you just have this picture in their brain, um, straight, you know, one after another after another, and that's how they learn. If you start changing that picture, that's when they're going to start to get, um, you know, make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so we then we put them sort of behind a, an obstacle, like a, a 44-gallon drum, puppies jumping around with the handler, wanting to get to his toy and let him go, you know, just say, go find. Mm-hmm. And he'll run around and, and he will, you know, at this stage hopefully bark or sort of bark. Um, we've had them that are barking right at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, which is great. But, you know, they're not all the same. So um, and then we just build on that 
preferably no formal obedience. We like a good recall in mm. the beginning. Good recall. Good recall for any dog. You've got to have that. Um, but no formal, anything that's going to take their initiative away from working away from you and achieving their, getting their paycheck mm. when they found that person. So then we just go through, um, we've got uh, what we call bark boxes where it's a big box with a guillotine lid. The, the handler gets in there, um, squeaks the toy, the lid goes down, the dog knows he has to go up, and the only way that he's going to get that lid open is to bark and scratch and dig. So and then the, the window, the guillotine lid comes up and he goes in and plays with the victim mm. or the survivor or yeah. the helper yes. um, and gets his reward, and it's a tug reward. And then he's allowed to take that um, toy, he's won it, off the victim and he's allowed to strut back to the truck with it (laughs) where he gets another treat. We never use food anywhere near any site Mm -hmm. at all, ever. So um, it's just that when, um, if the dog is going to be used food as a reward, uh, they had an example in Turkey in 1999 where they had a lot of collapsed buildings and the dogs were alerting to food, Mm -hmm. uh, thinking that the food was related to the victim. And it wasn't. Uh, yeah, so, you know, way back we use food as a reward back at the truck. It's like the uh, the wolf pack when the puppies go out at four weeks old and they, they're taught to kill mm-hmm. and take their prey back to the den and then they eat it. So they've gone out. Our dogs have gone out. They've hunted down the... The, the helper, the survivor, the victim, whatever you want to call him, mm-hmm. um, and located him, you know, tore the to- toy off him, you know, play, 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 mm-hmm. got the toy off him, take the toy reward back to the truck and then he'll get a, his own reward which will be some sort of treat that he's never never has during the day. So I use a lot of leftovers meat, mm-hmm. um, cooked meat that they haven't had like chicken or whatever and um, so that's that's their reward and that's the whole process and then they go through you started about nine ten months um, you know bringing in to uh, the obedience the elements that we have to do we have to do directionals we have to be able to send a dog in an area and let him and make him search. So, if there's an area on a rubble site that you want him to do, you you have to be able to just hand signal, dog to the left, to the right, or way back, um, or come in. And there's a downstay, but these are all formal areas that mm-hmm. don't take you know they don't take that long to um, to teach. It's because you've already got a fantastic rapport with that dog. So if you've got an efficient paycheck for mm-hmm. them. They'll do anything. And so once you've got the basics down, is it just about trying to develop more complex scenarios and you keep building on that scenario after scenario? Yes, we get – then we we sort of build into one victim Mm -hmm. and it's a big play and whatever, back to the truck and then down the track when they're confident of that, just the one victim, the search is good, we'll pop two victims. Okay, look, you haven't finished. Mm. Yeah, Let's find someone else. And that's how we get the multiple victims. And we 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 have to, to work on a lot of different areas. The dogs, if you're training on the same area, the dogs are, 
are smart. They know where every hide is. The handlers know where every hide is. Yes. Scenarios are always the same. So we try to get different sites um, around Melbourne, country Victoria, to take the dogs and the handlers to these different sites and work it work through that. It, but it takes probably the dog should be ready, you know, trained this way, should be ready for assessments at around 18 months old to two years and then uh, they're operationally assessed every two years um, in in um, in group, our foundation skills, fundamental skills assessment mm-hmm. uh, every year. So um, that's just the elements. There's two searches and just your obedience side of it and agility. The dogs have to be agile. They have to be taught to uh, climb ladders successfully, um, either horizontal ladders or vertical ladders, and um, that is an area that needs strong nerve as well. So dogs don't know that they have a re- have their back legs until you tell them that they're there. You'll see a dog that's never cl- climbed a ladder is trying to climb with his front legs, mm-hmm. and his back legs should be coming. Yes. But why aren't they? Because I don't realise they haven't got back legs. So we have to teach the dog to climb a ladder mm-hmm. and... Uh, that's an area where strong nerve comes into it and unstable surfaces, every, the, the whole surface is rocking um, and that's what you're going to get on, a, on a, um, a, a collapsed building or an earthquake site or something. And the people who do the accreditation for the dogs, is that an international standard? Uh, Australia created their own best practice guideline back in 2008 and it was, it was sanctioned in 2009 by the Australian government and is now in the uh, public safety package. Mm. And uh, originally we had international assessors, but Victoria Police have done uh, the SADA assessments for the last three years. Yeah, so uh, at this stage it's Victoria Police Dog Squad um, as, as our main lead assessors and their fan- fundamental skills assessments can be in-house but we prefer to get outsiders again to uh, to do that assessment. You're obviously heavily reliant on sponsors. As you say, it's a, it's a volunteer organisation. So who are some of your sponsors, Julie, and if you'd like to give them a quick plug before we finish up? Oh, look, we, we cannot survive without assistance from these sponsors. Um, Alex Fraser Group, Green Roads, um, have, uh, have been absolutely amazing. They, are, they recycle concrete. And they've given us um, access to their three sites in Laverton, uh, Clarinda, which is Clayton, and Epping. And their uh, funding, they've been able to fund international trainers to come out to train us. They've set up sites, especially their Laverton site. They've given us uh, a five-day access over the Melbourne Cup weekend and uh, the Simon... Hoy, the site manager, has been able to build us um, hides and and tunnels and and that for the all anyone to come that's in Australia. So it's a national workshop. Um, we and they funded uh, myself to go to Indiana last April to do um, a USAR live find and a human remains course, and 
They've been able to fund our trips to Aradale, which is our at the Aradale Lunatic Asylum. We take every weekend, every long weekend in June, we have four days up there, and that is massive. And we couldn't survive without places to train. We do have our own uh, training grounds where we have um, agility and everything set up at our crib point in on the Mornington Peninsula. And we have 300 acres there that we do land SAR as well. Um, and also uh, Royal Cannon, they're our dog food sponsors and they have been amazing. And, you know, we've been able to get dog food from them for coming up three years now. And every quarter we get a, a, a dog food and it's just such a um, a godsend to the handlers because the t- dog food is very expensive. And if you've got more than one dog, it is very expensive. Mm-hmm. And we have Frankston Heights Veterinary Centre who sponsor us um, in the way of uh, treatment to the dogs free of charge, whether they're, they're hurt or injured in training or on deployment. And they also give us a monetary donation um, every year. They have uh, nail clipping and you can go in and get your, your dog's or cat's nails clipped and for a gold coin donation. So they donate proceeds of that to SADA and also to the Golden Retriever Rescue. Uh, and we have, you know, um, we apply for grants. The Emergency Management Victoria have just issued us a grant through um, – through James Molino, Craig Lapsley and Harriet Shing, which will go towards more of our training, getting more trainers out to from inter, uh, inter, internationally. And uh, also CFA have been very generous in, um, in granting us money to buy uh, proper ladders for the dogs because when we train with the CFA, um, they've got these fantastic ladders and our dogs are not used to them. So mm. we were able to purchase two really good, strong ladders like they have and three tunnels that go for, you know, quite a way um, and a new bark box. Our bark box was something like 22 years old and it was very dilapidated. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to get a new bark box for the young pups and, you know, we've had organisations, I do a lot of public speaking um, to organisations where they might sort of, you know, donate $100 here or $100 there. Um, we have one girl, um, she has donates $20 a month um, and it's just a, a, um, a direct credit to our account uh, to assist the dogs, which is we're just so grateful, and it's all all assisting um, the training of the of the search dog. That's fantastic. And if people want to donate to Search and Rescue Dogs Australia, where can they go? Uh, our website is www.sarda.net.au. That's S A R D A, um, and there's a donate button on the um, link on the site that you can donate. Um, and yeah, it will all go towards, um, you know, a lot of travel. We've got to travel every weekend. So, um, it's not that, you know, that we're going to take out petrol money, but it all, all helps for the logistics that we have to pay for. A lot of the, the sites that, um, are probably set up for it, um, we have to pay for. 
So, and that's the way it goes. If you wanted to get in to an area that that's uh, an agency set up, you have to pay for it. Yeah. So, if people would like to contact Search and Rescue Dogs Australia, how, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, on our website, there's um, uh, an email an email request, or there's uh, my phone number is on the website. And um, we also have a Facebook page with all the details of contact as well. Facebook is probably more current um, and you can have a look at what we're doing, photos of uh, of our, you know, training and, and um, just things that we do. And, Julie, what would you recommend for people wanting to get involved in search and rescue dogs? I'd recommend they come along and they have a look at the efficiency of a trained search dog. It is amazing. Um, for someone that has never seen a dog work before, for example, the Alex Fraser Group um, chiefs, they were so um, generous in um, getting us and allowing us to use these their sites. And I just might add that it was a CFA um Operations Officer Arthur Haynes that really initiated all that, the relationship we have with Alex Fraser because um, they thought I was a bit of a nutter. (laughs) Um, Alex Fraser Group had given us, been with us for two years until we had the national workshop where we invited um, two trainers to come over from the US and a couple of them came to have a look. And they just kept coming back every day. They just said, we had no idea of what the dogs could do. And they were really blown away with what they, what they could do. So there's nothing more, um, enjoyable or, or gobsmacking to seeing a, a, a search dog working efficiently and accurately and how much he enjoys it. And so when you see the finished product, You've got to sort of go back to the beginning and then start from the ground up and you'll get there. You'll get there. By hook or by crook, you'll get there. (laughs) And finally, who should I interview next? Wow. I reckon that you could could get, um, I think Craig Lapsley would like to have a chat with you about us. Um, he's been with us. He's been our patron for four years now, and he's been to all our um, national workshops. Um, and he knows exactly what what we're capable of doing, and and his support, um, guiding us in the right direction, um, helping us to do, uh, you know, get get out there. And he would be ideal. If he, if he had the time and uh, but no he's been a huge support as as is Harriet Ching she's been an absolute great support to us and looking areas of funding realizing that you know these this costs us a lot of money and assisting us with um, with areas that she could find within government resources and yeah we're just um, I think that would probably coming from a government level um, would be the next step. Julie Cowan, Search and Rescue Dogs Australia, thank you very much for joining me on the Emergency Management Podcast. Thank you, Stuart. Um, I really appreciate the, um, the opportunity to be able to speak about our dogs. I am passionate, as you might realise. It comes across loud and clear. <laughs> thank you. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more about the topics discussed, go to emergencymanagementpodcast.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at feedback at emergencymanagementpodcast.com. I'm Stuart Walker, and you've been listening to the Emergency Management Podcast. Bye for now.